Our passage this morning is John 3, verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 3. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Good morning. Happy New Year. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you're new, if you're a visitor, we're glad you're here. As John said, we, we linger as a church, and so we would love that you would linger too so we could get to know you and help share anything about grace that you're curious about. Well, again, if you're new, uh, we preach through books of the Bible, and so we are preaching through John's gospel, and so we've made it to the end of, of chapter 3. And so the, the purpose of this passage highlights a transition in the story. John the Apostle is providing a, a humble transition between the forerunner, John the Baptist, and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John's ministry was to bear witness to the light, and now that the light has come, John's going to fade into the background. It's a sign of humility, but it's also the expectation for the story of redemption to keep moving forward with Jesus now as the undisputed focus. It's the promise of even greater and more glorious things awaiting us in John's gospel. So imagine a a track relay race. You have the first runner, he's running with the baton, and as he approaches the second runner, there's an exchange zone where the handoff actually takes place. And so the first runner doesn't come to a complete stop and hand it off, and then the second runner goes. There's this time where they're both running. The first runner's approaching, comes to the exchange zone. The second runner starts picking up speed so that he can accelerate once he has the baton much easier. So that's kind of the idea of the first three chapters of John's Gospel. This, This transition is happening, and there's overlap, where they're both running the race at the same time. So in chapter one, we first meet John the Baptist, He's out in the wilderness baptizing, and Jesus comes. John testifies to Jesus that he's the Son of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. 
John baptizes Jesus. And some of John's disciples even become Jesus' disciples. So you see some of the, the exchange happening. And then both characters appear in the story, and there's overlap. We see some stories with Jesus where he's calling his disciples, he's turning water into wine, he cleans the temple, he encounters Nicodemus, a Jewish leader and teacher. And now, at the end of chapter 3, John the Baptist is, is back on the scene. And this is his final appearance in the book. He's mentioned again in, in chapter 5, but he's not a character at this point. He's, he's done after chapter 3. So for the, for the Apostle John's purposes, the writer of, of John's gospel, this is the end of, of John's, John the Baptist's ministry. I'm really going to try hard to keep John and John the Baptist straight. So by the end of our, our passage, Jesus is preeminent. He comes to the undisputed focus of John's gospel. But it's not obviously just a, a literary device. It's not just changing characters for interest's sake or for the sake of the story. There's other things affected by this exchange. John the disciple is using this to point to the greater realities in the story of redemption. So as we work through our passage, we'll see a few things of note. First, we'll see the humility of John the Baptist. We'll see how the exchange echoes other transitions in redemptive history. And we'll see ways that Jesus is far superior as a witness to any other witness that's come before. And the structure of the, the passage is a chiasm. I was trying to think of a, a less nerdy word to use, but I couldn't. So it's a, a writing technique that's used frequently in the Bible. And the idea is that the, the first idea in a passage corresponds to the last idea, which is maybe why you can see why we included some of chapter 4. And, and then it kind of stair steps to really force your attention to the middle. And so that's where we'll spend most of our time is in the middle of this passage because that's what John wants us to see as the author. So if, if you have a chance at home, kids, try and find all those different stair steps in this, in this passage. It's a fun exercise. But in order to get to the middle, we need to, to go through the background and understand this scene, but... We also need the Spirit's help. So would you join me and and pray that we would receive the Holy Spirit's help, that we would understand this passage, that we would apply it to our hearts and our lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for sending your Son to earth. He is the Word. May we treasure every jot and tittle of your Word. May it rule over us and strengthen us. Convict, Convict us of any unconfessed sin we might have. May we not take it for granted that we have the word. Israel experienced a famine of your word, that you removed the word from them. I pray that with our abundance of access to your word, we may not squander that, that we may take full advantage of the access we have to your word. May we never ignore it or move on from it. I pray that we would be a church that knows your word, that we would know it far better a year from now than we do today. May dads consistently put the word before their wives and children. May we be a church who doesn't just talk about the word, but our lives are formed by the word. This morning, may it humble us in our proud and jealous places. May it point us to greater glory that we see in Christ. May we be filled with courage and hope as we scatter for our week ahead. And I ask that you would help me preach now. May I faithfully handle this passage 
May I be clear with what you once said. May your spirit quicken our hearts to believe and apply this passage. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, as I said, let's, let's begin with some of the background, which looks at the geography. We have in, in verses 22 and 23, we have Jesus and his disciples are in one area. And John the Baptist and some of his disciples are in another area. And they're both near watery places, baptizing people. Jesus is in the countryside of Judea, or you might even say the wilderness, which certainly echoes John the Baptist's ministry. Meanwhile, John is in a place called Anon, near Salim. So how do we get our bearings around this? During the time of Jesus, there's, there's three major regions. There's Judea in the south, and its eastern border is the Dead Sea, primarily. And then in the middle is Samaria, the Samarian region, and it's, it has the, river, the Jordan River that flows from the Dead Sea uh, to the Sea of Galilee. And so the Sea of Galilee is at the north, with the region, Galilee, at the north as well. And so Jesus and his disciples, it says that he is in Judea, most likely near the area of Jerusalem, but probably closer to uh, the Jordan River because there's water. Anon and Salim are more difficult to locate. Uh, if you have a, a map in the back of your Bible, it might even list those cities with question marks because we're just really not sure where they are. So it could be that... that Anon and Salim are in the north, uh, almost to Galilee. Uh, another thought is that they're in the south. The passage does not hinge on this detail, but I do think there's some, some reasons why uh, it would be in the south. And we'll get to that as I go further into the sermon. Again, it's, it's not a huge deal, but all of Scripture has significance. and So I think it's important at least to ask the question, where is it? doesn't affect major doctrine, so keep that in mind. But they're near water. John the, the Apostle is, is including Jesus and his disciples and John and his disciples together at the beginning here. There's also this parenthesis in verse 24. It says, for John had not, not yet been put in prison. In, in your Bible, it might be in actual parentheses where John the Apostle is kind of making a little footnote or a comment to help us understand the context a little bit more. And what he's doing is he's assuming that you've read the other Gospels, you, that you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so you know what happens to John the Baptist. Kids, you probably know what happened to John the Baptist. He was arrested eventually, and he was beheaded. That's John the Baptist's ultimate fate on earth. So John includes this here because he's saying at, at our point in the story, in John chapter 3, that hasn't happened yet. He's not been arrested. He's still out and, and baptizing and, and testifying about Jesus. So it, it helps us understand the, the timeline in John's gospel. And so even though that chronologically his ministry lasted longer, for John's purposes, it ends here. He's, he's finished. And it also, again, points ahead to the, the looming death that he will die uh, in the future. But it's a, it's a subtle marker that the, the handoff is about to happen. So verse 25, the, the, the Jews that are out there, uh, says that now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. 
We've seen this topic of purification in John's Gospel before. Wedding at Cana. The, the jars that were filled with water that Jesus turned into wine. Those were purification jars. They were for purification rituals. And now we have a, a Jew who's discussing this topic with John's disciples. So this, again, helps us to set the context. Who is John the Baptist interacting with? He's inter- interacting with the Jews. Probably Jews who think they understand the things of God. But it will be quickly clear that they don't understand the, the, that the way, the things of God, the way that John the Baptist does. So they go on, they, verse 26, Rabbi, asking John the Baptist, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So the, the Jews come up to John the Baptist, thinking there's this budding rivalry between these two. John, aren't you worried about this other guy? This, you were here first and I mean, you even baptized him. And now he's drawing crowds. He's drawing bigger crowds than you are. What are you going to do about that? So we see that there's, there's people flocking now to Jesus in the same way, in a similar way that they were flocking to John the Baptist at the beginning. Certainly an opportunity for jealousy. If we use the wrong metrics or the wrong perspective, we can be led to jealousy. Think about church growth or social media likes or other areas of life where we compare things in that way. Maybe it's getting passed over for a promotion. Maybe your brother's getting a bigger slice of the cake. If we see things as a competition, we can run into trouble quickly. Especially if we see ourselves as the center of the story. Back in, during the Exodus, Moses faced a similar situation. This is from Numbers 11, but the Israelites are still wandering in the the wilderness, and it is a pretty rough time. There is almost continual grumbling. The Lord calls Moses to gather 70 elders, and they will gather outside the camp. And God had told them he would meet with them, and he would pour out his spirit on them, and then they would prophesy, which happened. Except there were two men that remained in the camp. And the, spirit, it, the text says the Spirit rested on them, and they prophesied within the camp. And so Moses is, is outside the camp. A young man runs up to him and said, The two men are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. Again, you can kind of imagine Joshua just running and, Moses, you've got to do something. They're taking away from your glory. We've got to make sure we don't have a competition here. Aren't you worried, Moses? Aren't you jealous? But Moses responded, and he said, Are you jealous for my sake? Would all of the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them? Moses wasn't shaken because he had a greater perspective than the others. And it's the same perspective that we see John the Baptist having here, too. Moses wasn't threatened by people prophesying because it wasn't about Moses. And it wasn't about those people. It was about what God was doing. And John the Baptist had the same understanding. So in verse 27, we see him responding to the Jews. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John's response here is is filled with humility. There's definitely an opportunity where he could defend himself or justify his ministry. 
But just like Moses, John the Baptist has a heavenly and humble perspective. There's no rivalry. John isn't taking Jesus' glory because John had no glory to be taken. He understood his role as witness. His job is to point to the Messiah, not be the Messiah. And while this is true for all of humanity, that we need to have this kind of humble response, it was definitely true of the Jews first. Again, realize that, that what the author is doing here is showing that Jesus will come to the Jews, but they won't understand. They don't have this heavenly perspective. And this was part of John the Baptist's ministry, was to warn and even harden Israel. So far in John's gospel, we've seen the Jews miss it in every way. John 1 says, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Later, the Pharisees sent representatives to John the Baptist and to Jesus, and neither group understood. Jesus cleared the temple because it was being misused, and he also showed that a greater temple, him, was here. Yet they didn't understand. Nicodemus, a teacher of the Jews, didn't understand when he encountered Christ. And here again, they don't understand because they don't have the heavenly perspective. Now, going forward, some some Jews will repent and believe. But many others will try to place their confidence in something else, like the Levitical laws, purification rituals, the temple, or rabbinic tradition. And because they lack this heavenly perspective that can only come by faith, they will continue to miss it. John the Baptist continues on in in verse 28 by reminding them that he is not the Christ. In a book filled with with I am statements, and we'll, we'll start to see some of those in the future chapters, I am statements about Christ, John the Baptist makes it clear that he is not the great I am. I am not the Christ, he says. His job was a witness, and he performed his job well. A witness is not the point. A witness sheds light on the point. Think about a courtroom. Even though we we sometimes talk about star witnesses and things like that, they're actually not the point. A witness in court is to give account and contribute to the truth that they're trying to understand. Ultimately, we hope that the truth will prevail in the court of law because of witnesses. Another analogy for a witness is a witness at a wedding. John the Baptist calls himself a friend of the bridegroom, what we would call the best man. The best man is not the point. The bride and the groom are. The friend of the groom in the Jewish culture was to prepare everything before the wedding, to make sure everything was ready to go in order to make the groom look good. When I was in when I was younger, my roommate from college was the first of our, our friends to get married, and he asked me to be his best man. And it was the first wedding I'd ever been in, and so I didn't really know what my job was. But I'd I'd seen movies and TV, and so I knew the toast. It's all about the toast. So I worked out a really good speech. I had jokes. I had props. In my mind, it was going to be more of a roast than a toast, but I was ready. And then a humbling thing happened to me. My friend's reception never got around to the speeches. They did the food, they did the dancing, and then that was it. So at first I was disappointed. I didn't get my moment in the spotlight. 
But I was married shortly after that, and so I was able to eventually understand the point. The best man is not the point. I am not the point of the wedding. The wedding of the bride and the groom is the point. As I've learned what a wedding is for, it is such a different perspective to then be part of a wedding. There is real joy at seeing a godly wedding, and the honor is to merely be invited or participate in some way. John's role was to prepare the groom, and it says that he has joy over being a part of this. He is included in the, in the wedding, which is true of anyone who puts their, their faith in Christ. Verse 30. This is kind of the, the summary of John and his humility. He says, He must increase, but I must decrease. This could be the motto for every Christian and probably especially ministers of the gospel. He must increase. That's my hope. That's my earnest prayer this morning. And then I must decrease. This would be a great, simple verse to memorize. Or as, as Dave might suggest if he was here, write it down. Write it on your neighbor's arm. Build a sign over your kitchen table. But if that's your main takeaway that's this morning, he must increase. I must decrease. That's what you should remember. He must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist exemplified this well. He knew his role, especially in relation to the Lord. His job was to testify to the truth of Jesus and then fade into the background. And growing up the way that John did, understanding Scripture, he certainly must have been familiar with the job description of a prophet. It was not glorious, and it wasn't a cushy job. Hebrews 11, you can... Look there, and it gives a good summary of what happened to some of the prophets. It's true. Many did amazing signs and wonders, but it rarely ended well. What's even more incredible is that John the Baptist was content to do this. He rejoiced at his role coming to an end. Sometimes we we hear the word humility and we think passivity, but it's not that. That's not humility. John the Baptist certainly wasn't passive. He went after people. He called them a brood of vipers. He rebuked Herod for his wickedness. Humility and boldness are not opposed. So we can see John's boldness and also see his humility at the same time. Now we get to this passing of the baton. We've seen the humility of John the Baptist. We've heard his testimony. And now he's rejoicing at the coming of the bridegroom. And here's where the baton gets passed. And this picks up on a a biblical theme among the prophets, this idea of prophetic succession. Since the time of Moses, and and actually before Moses, God has provided uh, prophets to his people. And there's a few times in Scripture where there's an exchange between old and new prophet. And I think that's something that the Apostle John, the, the author, is picking up on here. It's the idea of a handoff that appears in the Old Testament as well. So there's at least two significant handoffs that we see in Scripture. First, there's Moses to Joshua. We've already mentioned him a little bit. At the end of Moses' life, God tells Moses he will not go into the promised land. 
So instead, the Lord appoints Joshua to succeed Moses and bring the people into the promised land. So Numbers 27 describes a little bit of this. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. So Moses lays hands on Joshua, and it says he invested some of Moses' authority into Joshua. There's this passing. There's an exchange zone of sorts. There's a divine baton passing. So Moses dies shortly after he commissions Joshua. Moses died in Moab on a mountain outside of the promised land. And yet he could see Jericho from there. Joshua buried him. Now Joshua, the new the successor, will enter the land. And what are the two most famous events in Joshua's life? He crosses the Jordan, where the, the waters part and they walk on dry land, very similar to Moses and the Red Sea. And the first city he comes to is Jericho. And that's the first battle, the first victory in, in going into the land and, and conquering the Canaanites. When you compare their two ministries, there's also some overlaps between John the Baptist and Jesus. Moses' ministry is a grind. He deals with constant grumbling, and the first generation all dies in the wilderness. You could maybe summarize Moses' ministry like this. The people mostly rebel with glimpses of victory. And then Joshua has almost a complete opposite experience. It's mostly victory with glimpses of rebellion and frustration. Joshua meets the head of the Lord's army, He's charged to be strong and courageous. And with the second generation of Israel, he does take the land. So we have an exchange between the leaders of Israel. And the second surpassing the first in terms of status and success. And the transition happens near the Jordan River and Jericho. Now we move ahead to another pair of prophets, Elijah and Elisha. Their stories are found in 1 and 2 Kings you probably know the story of Elijah being taken away by a chariot of fire. Any guess where that happened? Before the, the chariot came, Elijah and, Elijah and Elisha came to the Jordan River. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, struck the water, and the waters parted and they crossed over the land. Almost the same way that Joshua does. And just like Joshua, they are on their way to Jericho. And there's more parallels between Elijah and John the Baptist and Elisha and Jesus. Elijah's ministry was to Israel, warning them them of their wickedness. If they didn't repent, they would be removed from the land and go into exile. And he especially warned about the wicked house of Ahab. If you remember the battle between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, that was during the time of Ahab. So when Elijah is preparing to leave, he knows he is, he's going away. Elisha asks for a double portion of the Spirit. This was granted to Elisha, showing his ministry would be in, in some ways even greater than Elijah's. Eli, Elisha witnessed the fall of the house of Ahab, for example. What Elijah saw, Elisha saw finished. Elisha's ministry was filled with lots of similar stories to the life of Jesus as well. He did miracles, making water better. He cared for widows, even making food go further than it really should. 
He healed leprosy. He even raised a boy from the dead. And maybe you're asking a question if you've been following along in John's gospel. I remember in chapter 1, John the Baptist said he's not Elijah. So why are we now comparing him to Elijah? Well, there's two things that are happening. First, John the Baptist apparently didn't either, either know the connection to Elijah or he was answering that he wasn't literally the Elijah that some were expecting to come. Second, the rest of Scripture clearly makes John the Baptist the promised Elijah. Malachi tells of the day that Elijah will be sent ahead of the Lord. Someone like John the Baptist will come. And then Jesus himself tells his disciples after the transfiguration that John the Baptist was that Elijah. So despite what John the Baptist says in chapter 1, he is the figurative second Elijah who has come. Okay, so now let's go back to our text And we see where the the baton is passed from John the Baptist to Jesus. And while the the details are a little different than the other exchanges, it's clear that this exchange is from lesser servant to greater. It takes place near the Jordan. And again, this is my opinion, but I think there's reason to believe that Anon was probably in Judea as well, maybe even close to Jericho. Again, take that for what it's worth. Maybe I'll step aside and say that's not... Inspired, but um, it's interesting, at least. At any rate, hopefully you can see the, the bigger theme of succession. One prophet gives way to the next, and now we arrive at the prophet, the Son of God. John's witness is complete, and Jesus becomes the sole focus of the story. And just like in the case of, of Joshua and Elisha, we can expect to see greater things going forward. So far, for example, in John's gospel, we've, we've seen one sign. We've seen water turned into wine. But now they are going to pick up in both frequency and increasing glory as we go. Jesus will also reveal his, his identity through these I am statements. And ultimately, the action will head to Jerusalem, where just like John the Baptist, Jesus will meet a humbling fate at the hands of others who reject his message. So looking at at verses 31 to 36, it's not exactly clear whether whether these verses are are actually said by John the Baptist or their their commentary by John, the author. But either way, it's a description of Jesus in comparison with the witness of John the Baptist. And there's at least four ways here that we see Jesus as a greater witness than John's or anyone else up to this point. So we'll go through each of these somewhat quickly. Verse 31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He, comes, he who comes from heaven is above all. So the, the first way that Jesus is greater is that he came from above. John the Baptist came from the earth. No one would disagree with that. But now he emphasizes that Jesus has come from heaven. The guy who is baptized by John, now out in the wilderness with some disciples, actually came from heaven. Jesus succeeds John as a better prophet because his origin is greater. We've already seen this in a few places so far in in the first three chapters as well. In chapter 1, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
Well, it's not as clear here, but Jesus is telling his disciples that he is different than other rabbis or leaders because he has a different origin. And this is made a little bit clearer when he's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, a teacher of the Jews, doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. So Jesus responds and says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I be- how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man which is like a big arrow as he's telling Nicodemus. Jesus is better because he comes from heaven and he is above all. Secondly, Jesus is a better word. Look at verses 32 through 34. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Jesus bears witness to God, just like John the Baptist, but his testimony is greater because he is a better word. Jesus was sent to utter the words of God. That's the job of a prophet. But we know from John 1 that he is greater than other, prof- than other prophets because he's the actual word of God. Even further than that, he is God. So he's a better word. Next, Jesus has the spirit without measure. This is the second part of of verse 34. It says, For he gives the spirit without measure. This gives another way that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. The spirit coming upon him in a greater way. Joshua received some of Moses' spirit and wisdom. Elisha received a double portion of the spirit. Now Jesus possesses spirit without measure. R.C. Sproul described it this way. He said, When God anointed his son as the Messiah, the Holy Spirit was not given to him in a piecemeal or partial fashion. God the Father did not measure out a little dose of the Spirit to give to his son. Rather, he poured out the Spirit on the son in immeasurable dimensions. The signs and the wonders that Jesus will do, the teaching and claims that he will make, are all done in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if he possesses the Spirit without measure, it's easy to see how his ministry will be more glorious than anything we've ever seen. The last last of the ways that Jesus is, is greater, Jesus is loved by the Father. Verse 35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He says that he was loved by the Father. I love my nieces and my nephews. I love the kids at Grace. But I have a special love for my own kids, just like the Father has a special love for the Son. The Father has always loved the Son. And when it says that God the Father has given all things into his hand, it's saying that Jesus possesses everything that the Father has. Church Father Augustine explained it this way. He says, Therefore, having deigned to send us the Son, let us not imagine that it is something less than that the Father is sent to us. Let us not imagine that it is something less than the Father that is sent to us. So if we see Jesus, we see the Father. Because the Son perfectly images the Father. To believe the Son means we have union with the Son. Which means when the Father looks at us, it's like he's looking at his Son. If we are loved by the Son, then we are loved by the Father. I'm sure that there will be time in 
in the rest of John's gospel to unpack this further. But for now, at least recognize that the idea of the father loving the son is a really deep idea. There are many deep truths with this. It's not just a throwaway line that sounds nice. It's, there is a lot here that we could understand. Notice also that all three persons of the Trinity are tightly connected in verses 34 and 35. We have the Father giving the Spirit without measure to the Son, the Son whom the Father loves and has given all things into his hand. Again, the, the Apostle John packs so much in that we don't have time to exhaust it all here. Well, we get to verse 36, and it's a call to respond. John's given two possible responses in verses 32 and 33. He says, either receive the gospel or don't receive it. Those are the two possibilities. And now the Apostle John is pushing the need for response again in verse 36. For those who do not receive the testimony of John about Jesus or Jesus about himself, wrath awaits. But for those who receive the faith, the faith to believe the testimony will be saved to eternal life. So it's either wrath or eternal life. Responding to the gospel, or <laughs> responding to the gospel requires a response. We must respond to the gospel. It requires faith given by God. But it also requires humility. It's the acknowledgement that we are not God, that we are not good apart from God, and that we need God to fix the mess that we have found ourselves in. These are not easy things to admit. They require humility. In fact, they're impossible without God granting us the humility to do them. But that is the only way that we can escape wrath, that we can be in union with Christ. And the way God rescues us is through the ultimate act of humility. Jesus, the glorious Son of God, whom all the prophets pointed to, he who dwelled eternally in heaven, the very word who, was, who possessed the spirit without measure and who the Father loved. He is the one who humbled himself. He took on flesh, experienced all the things we do, witnessing the effects of, sin, of the fall, yet without sinning himself. And then he went lower. He went all the way to the cross. And like John the Baptist, even in his humility, he experienced joy at accomplishing his mission. Hebrews 12.2 Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus suffered immense humiliation through his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, and his death. And yet he endured it all for the joy that was set before him. And only those who are humbled by their sin and willing to admit that there are no rivals of Jesus will be given the faith to receive eternal life. Well, we come to the end of our passage, and we turn again to geography. It brings us right back where we started, in Judea, with Jesus and his disciples and baptism. But now there's no mention of John the Baptist. The Pharisees are mentioned in relation to the controversy about who's baptizing who and drawing crowds, but nothing about John. The tangles John encountered from the Jews will continue with Jesus. He will face increasing scrutiny from the Pharisees. So John's ministry comes to an end, 
Jesus' ministry picks up steam for the rest of John's gospel. It also points to the winding down of Israel and the old covenant and the new, better covenant being ushered in through Jesus. For those in Israel who missed the testimony of John, they will have further chances to either repent and believe the testimony of Jesus or harden themselves and reject the Savior. As we look ahead in John's gospel, we'll see Jesus do more signs and wonders. He'll become more explicit about who he is. He is the great I am. And John the Apostle will begin highlighting this in a variety of ways. Just like when Joshua and Elisha were greater successors than Moses and Elijah, we see Jesus as the greater witness. He's greater in every way. 